You're listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast, brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and supported by the Western Weekender. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. Travel the world, exploring and sharing her passion for drama and performing arts. From a young age, Katie has immersed herself into the arts and has a love of being on stage, making people laugh, and seeing her hard work come to life. Whilst the glitz and glamour of Hollywood isn't her motivation, it's the ability to connect, empower, and inspire others that really drives Katie. More recently, Katie has moved into writing and performing in her own shows which are a culmination of years of experience all around the world. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Katie, you've had a career that has panned all corners of the globe and you've had to write your own script, not only on stage but also throughout your life. But before we get into that, we'll go, go to the start. You grew up in the Blue Mountains, uh, west of Sydney by about uh, an hour or so. What was your childhood like growing up in the Blue Mountains? Um, I have very good memories of my childhood. There's a bit of a joke um, in my family that I can remember what I did when I was eight but I can't remember what I did yesterday. So, um, yeah, I have really strong memories of... Lots of playing, playing with all the siblings outside with friends down the street and you know, I already feel like a bit of an old woman talking about the good old days because I remember, you know, back then you just, if you wanted to play with someone, just go and knock on their door, you just had to be back at 5.30. So yeah, lots of freedom, um, lots of fun, lots of chaos, <laughs> growing, up, um, you know, growing up in quite a big family, so I had to like, fight your way to be heard. Um, probably, you know, didn't struggle with being heard too much. <laughs> um, yeah, like being, I think growing up in a small town is nice because you have your friends and um, arms reach away. You know, I think especially in younger childhood, you know, the further someone is away from you is a 10-minute drive or something like that. Do you think you touched on it there that you know, we just the freedom to go out and play, you know, there's kind of no rules, you should have yeah. to be back at a certain time. Do you think society has kind of lost that connection with, with the freedom of playing? Everything kind of seems structured or driven by tech. Do you feel yeah. like we've lost that a little bit? I 100% do, um, based on absolutely nothing. Um, I'm not a researcher, I'm not a social scientist, but yeah, it just seems like now it's almost like a, like a, like a debt hole culture. Like, you know, kids have to be clean and quiet and right and wrong and we rank them in schools. Like, you know, when I was in kindergarten in 92, I wasn't student number two and someone else was 30. Like, there was no ranking system. It was just like, have a crayon, do a drawing. And it's funny we've shifted to kind of that ranking culture because at the same time, people also don't want to be judged mm. or placed in a box. So it seems yeah. like it's a bit confused. It's, yeah, it's really confusing. So I feel, you know, I feel really lucky that I grew up without the technology that we have these days. Even though technology these days does bring us a lot of good things, I love that even high school, you know, going up without any social media, I, like I was probably the back end, like the last, probably within my window of maybe four years of people that, you know, didn't have that anymore. 
the kind of the MySpace era. Yeah, not or even. MSN, MSN era. Yeah, that would have, yeah, last probably year and a half of high school, MSN became a thing. Yeah, MSN Messenger. And were there particular passions or interests as a kid growing up in the mountains that, that you found or you uncovered? Um, yep, I loved organising games. I loved making my house a hotel and employing all my siblings and friends as the staff of the hotel. I can vouch for that. Yeah, you can vouch for that. Um, I had a, not that I've ever picked up a musical instrument in my life, but I formed a band, had the band practice. Um, so I, used to, you know, I think it was just like saucepans and things and we put on concerts and I, I remember asking mum for some lollies that I could give out as rewards to the band members, but then I just ate them all <laughs> whilst they were playing and I was probably being a classic manager sitting in the top office doing nothing. Um, yeah, got into drama at a really young age, dance um, at a really young age. But, yeah, I just remember a lot of the play being just made-up games. Do you, for you being performing and kind of you know, organising the group, what, what did that feel like for you? Was it the, the actual playing of the musical instruments that you enjoyed or being on stage that you enjoyed? I definitely I can remember it very clear. So, like I said at the start, it sounds weird because it's so long ago, but it's clear as day that the feeling of organising something and organising that band and getting everyone, setting up the chairs and having everyone to come and watch. But the thing about it being so vivid as well is I can remember my first disappointment of it not going as well. What was that? What was that disappointment? I remember we, so we used to live on a cul-de-sac street with lots of kids and I, I spent a couple of days, it would have been a couple of days, organising the world's greatest fun day. <laughs> so I had all these rides, well, not rides, but, you know, games and there was a swing and the trampoline. I'd set up a big map and dropped out all these invitations, organised this whole thing, and nobody turned up. <laughs> was, was there reasons behind that? No, I have no idea. But I, th- that feeling, that sinking feeling of, like, yeah. oh, no one, no one's here. Yeah. And yeah. did you, was that, like, something that kind of motivated you or is just... It, it was just a bit of sadness because it didn't play sadness, out. Sadness, and then, it, it's, yeah, I just bring it up because it was only recently that I was thinking about it that it came into my head. Um, and I was like, I think, and I, I would have been not super young, maybe like 10 or 11. I think, yeah, that was, because I think when you're a kid, and especially with the play that we've been talking about, you're so free, you just think that everything, the world is great and everything is fun. I think that was the first sort of moment of realising, well, people can let you down. Mm. So I think I had the tendency Instead of being like, oh, well, I'll do it bigger and better next time, that I went, oh, okay, well, I'll never do that again. And for you, Katie, you went to school at Springwood High School, mm-hmm. which is well-renowned for its performing arts and its drama. Coming out of high school, did you know what you wanted to do with your life? Uh, yes, but I didn't do it. Because, um, yeah, it was, even though the school had such an incredible um, drama and arts department with so much opportunity, there was like a bit of a... Um, like that didn't line up with sort of the advice we were giving when we were leaving school. So instead of, you know, how you have those one-to-one careers meetings and stuff when you're finishing up year 12, it was never suggested to me to go to NIDA or go to Whopper or pursue this, pursue this. It was like, well, that's not never going to happen, so why don't you go and study business was the advice given to me. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I didn't go into it straight away at all. I just enrolled in a social science degree because I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> And during that time, are you still performing? Are you still picking up kind of acts and gigs around the place? No, straight after school, I wasn't. Sort of left that in high school, I think, yeah. Yeah, and then you sort of, you know, you turn 18, you discover that you can go out, <laughs> so... Different kind of performing. Yeah, yeah, but no, I, I stopped it. I stopped for a while, and it was in 2007, it would have been, so three years after I left school, I'd changed degrees again 
um, and was doing a teaching degree, an international studies degree at UTS, and I joined their drama society. And what was your mindset with, with drama at that point in terms of joining that society? Was mm. it because you wanted to kind of get out there and be performing, or is it just a hobby that you wanted to keep yourself going? Um, I think I just... I think I was missing it and I think I, I didn't really know how to go about doing it because also like this is, you know, 14 years ago where the, like we, we had television and stuff but you didn't have that constant of like, oh, look, this person's doing it, that person's doing it. It was, I feel like it's the times have changed so much and now there's much more encouragement of just, oh, just try it. It doesn't matter if you fail. Whereas back then it was very much like, no, you get a job and you have a proper career. You know, you don't, you don't play music or or be a dancer or be an actor you you know grow up and be a teacher and I think we were speaking about it before the Mm. show that I guess it seems like generally there's less barriers to entry Mm. in life these days but also maybe a bit more of that American mindset that go out give it a crack and if you fail you fail whereas previously you know for us growing up it was probably a bit more conservative in terms of you you follow the path you follow the career path and kind of don't veer off that do you feel like that's shifted in society a little Um, bit? I think so yeah maybe even within myself I think um you know I don't mean this to sound as dramatic as it does sound but I think I found school very limiting in what it could teach you and I I often joke around and say I wish I went to a a Steiner school or a school that was a bit more fostering and and free thinking instead of a bit more the the, what you know Ken, Ken Robinson would call the paradigm of education sort of making these little factories where we're just pumping out these kids and like we were talking before about ranking them and stuff so I think that took a lot of my spark away, um, the school system. So I probably took a few years to to kind of reclaim that a little bit. And you eventually shifted to a new degree, mm-hmm. the University of Wollongong. What yeah. was that degree? Um, so that was, yeah, Bachelor of Performing Arts, and I kept an arts degree going as well. Um, but, yeah, that was after being in the um, yeah UTS Drama Society, which is, like, literally, yeah, just a club. Most people are just there doing it as a hobby and just doing a little, like, this little insignificant performance evening and just being under the lights again, I just sort of went, why not? And because I was doing teaching at the time, I realised, I was like, if I wanted to to become a performer and be a better performer, I was, how old was I at the time? 20? Yeah, 20 turning, or just turned 21. So I may as well do that now. And if, if I don't want to do it, I, you can come back to a teaching degree at any time, but I didn't want to miss the chance of, um, <clears throat> yeah, going into a performing degree. And did you feel like, yeah, 2021, that you had to make decisions that would shape the rest of your life? Oh, yeah. I think, yeah, that's inflicted on you at, like, 17, 18. Yeah, so I think, and I think I was really lucky, like, you know, coming from a family that just sort of went, oh, okay, <laughs> you're changing again. <laughs> yep, that's good. Like, especially going home and, you know, having to tell, like, yep, so I dropped out of my teaching degree. I'm going to move to Wollongong and study creative arts. And, yep, that was, there was no arguments there. Like, I've, ne- I've never been... Um, you know, told, oh, no, you can't do that. You've got to go to this university. You've got to do this degree and get this job. And how important was that for, for you, whether it's parents, friends, siblings, for you having that support network to say, hey, we're here to kind of catch you if you fall. Yeah. What did that mean to you? Um, oh, everything. And I probably, you know, being a bit young and naive at the time, you don't really realise how significant that was. But then, you know, yeah, just hearing, even meeting people now, like, oh, I wish I did that, but I was never allowed to. Like, I realised just how lucky I am and that, I, you know, the door was I moved out of home at 20, but the door was always open to go back if I needed to. And when you were at the University of Wollongong, were you getting into more kind of structured performances and and regular plays throughout that time? Yeah, yep. So we, part of the degree was, so it was broken down. 
um, we had like one theory subject, so only one theory subject, and that's like it was called dramaturgy. So it's like reading and, and analyzing plays or like significant periods um, throughout throughout um, drama history or particular practitioners, all sort of theory based essay writing and stuff. Um, but then the rest of it, we had a skills subject, which was broken down into like movement, voice, um, acting, and. Oh, I've forgotten what the, what the other skill was. Singing. Singing was the other skill. Um, and then the other subject was um, was professional practice. So every semester you're working on a show, um, putting a show on at the end of every single semester. Um, plus there was a lot of opportunity to get involved. Like students would just put on productions and stuff. Like sometimes the creative writing students um, would write a show that one of us would direct and someone else would like, would be in it. And I think from the sounds of it, that kind of really hands-on experience, you're getting the skill development but also the professional practice. Yeah. Do you look back on that now and th- think, geez, that was worth it? Yeah, I do. Um, I have mixed feelings. Like, I, I think if if I could go back into the past, I think I would have told myself don't bother with a three-year degree. Not that it's an entirely a waste, but again, you've got that – it's an institution. So you've got that institutionalised thinking going on behind it. Um, and especially in something like – uh, performing arts, which is so vulnerable. I don't always think they dealt with things properly. Um, so I'd probably say if I could go back, or what I say to people, and when I meet younger people who are like, oh, I want to do acting, what should I do? I say, find a really good quality short course or find a really good mentor. Don't bother with a three-year mm-hmm. three year degree. Like, yeah, it gave me very good skills, gave me a network and my friends, but I don't think, I think it's better to learn how to be a well-rounded, confident person rather than like, oh, look, I can do this movement with my shoulder and sing really high. <laughs> so it's almost too structured to yeah, the day, you think? Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's probably going back to our, our school analogy, maybe a bit too much kind of report card. Yeah, much too much. And also, again, slightly dated. I'm not sure how, the, you know, they operate now or how other institutions operate, but it was this bit of an old philosophy of, like, we'll tear you down and build you up, which is sort of an old philosophy of teaching. Especially in the creative yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. So it's like there's a sort of an ongoing philosophy of like you have to everything that you're feeling in the character you have to feel it in your soul as a person without much protection of making sure you're okay coming through that. But I think there's been a lot changed, like even in the professional world where people have been like, actually, we need to look after people better. It's not just about or making the best scene possible. Like there's other ways of doing it. And for you during that time. You know, getting that professional practice and, and developing the skills, did you have a sense that the performing arts would come to more or you were just enjoying it for what it was there and then? Um, I was definitely enjoying it for what it was there and then. Um, yeah, I do think one thing that, that... I feel like I'm just talking very down about the degree. I, I don't mean it like that. I just think it, there's other ways of doing things. But one thing I think that I didn't get from it was we had all of these incredible skills, really good teachers teaching us these skills as well, but nothing like the business side of it. Like, we didn't walk out with any sort of networking savvy skills to, you know, approach Sydney or whatever city um, you're in with, you know, on a, how, to get a, how to get a job, so to speak. So I think that, yeah, sort of gave us all these skills and you sort of go out and you'll be like, oh. So it's all about once you get on stage, but it's getting to the stage, yeah, which is the Yeah, yeah, like part. how do you get jobs? What's a headshot? What websites do I need to be on? How do I approach an agent? Like all that sort of business skills side of things um, we didn't get. So I think that's a bit of a gap that and needed to be filled. You'd see it all around the place, an abundance of extremely talented performers who just mm-hmm. haven't had that, I guess, connection or, or network to yeah. kind of take it to that next level yeah. as well. Yeah, definitely. And for you, Katie, was 
growing up as well and at university, mm. was there kind of a fantasy around walking the red carpet and win- winning an Oscar? Was that what was in it for you to be um, in the in the glitz and glamour of it all? Not particular. Like, oh yeah, it's not like I ever grew. I, I wasn't the type of person that would like, yeah, watch watch the Golden Globes every year, and I knew who my favourite actor was. I, not in that sense. I think I just wanted to make a living from it. Like, I wanted to be successful, but, yeah, not necessarily. I didn't, I didn't have any interest in being, like, a celebrity. And I think that's, again, we were speaking before the show, mm-hmm. that there is that there is that group in society of a number of skills and trades yeah. who are just as talented as the celebrity thing, people yeah. that they don't get that break and yeah, yeah. Um, all the recognition that they yeah. probably deserve as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's a lot of it is time and money and... And probably, um, yeah, time, money and a push and mentality that maybe, you know, just wasn't around when when I was younger. Do you think social media has benefited that for the kind of the next wave coming through? Probably, yeah. I, I don't understand how it all works. I'm sure it is. I mean, Justin Bieber was found on YouTube. So, yeah, like people always say even now, they're like, oh, you know, you've got to get a YouTube channel. And I was like, oh, do I? Am I like, do people actually just watch that stuff on the train? I read books. <laughs> I'm a bit the same as you, I yeah. reckon. And Katie, for, for you, theatre and, and travel have been two of your big passions throughout your life. When did travel first become a major part of, of your life? Um, really young, actually. I went to Italy when I was 15 on exchange for six months. Um, and I decided that I wanted to do... I think they'd had some sort of fair come to school and I'd seen some flyers or whatever. And I remember sitting in science, in year nine science, and we had this big project to do. Now, maths and science aren't my fortes. I was hearing about this big, sci- this big science assignment. I thought, I don't want to do that. How could I not do that? I could go on exchange, then I won't have to do it. <laughs> Is that how you explained it to your parents? Or? Mm, probably not. <laughs> but yeah, so I ended up doing that um, for six months, and yeah, that, you know, always loved it. And even just little family holidays my whole life. And during your university years, was there much travel that you took on during that time? Um, Just one trip to Europe. So the, yeah, the course was quite work heavy, it was like 35 hours a week face-to-face plus all the the extra hours so while I feel like all my other friends studying other degrees were traveling every holidays I didn't so much have the time really to do that so yeah did yeah one trip I think in that time um and then yeah the year after I graduated so that would have been 2012 um I went to Vietnam to sort of like they're called like an internship thing I don't know if that's the right word but it was yeah, one of my teachers had a connection um, to this um, arts company in Vietnam who was sort of organising a few little festival things there. So I just went there for two months and helped with them. And for you, I guess, going to a foreign country and, um, I guess, chasing your passion to a degree, mm. what was that experience like? Um, this one was cool. And, like, yeah, being in a country that's so different and so hot <laughs> and, um, yeah, being more behind the scenes because we were just sort of helping with, like, costumes and I think we did... Some I had to teach some choreography, and that's quite hard to teach dance choreography to a bunch of Vietnamese teenagers that don't know what you're saying, I don't, and I don't know what they're saying. Um, so you're being sort of behind the scenes. I think, like, I got from that, I'm like, oh, you know, I definitely want to be, you know, in the scene, not behind the scenes. But, yeah, I just think it's cool just to see, you know, even in, in a country that's so different, they've still got the stage, they've still got the lights, they've still got the costumes and all that sort of the fundamental ingredients of a performance are exactly the same everywhere. And for you, what, what was the feeling like when you were travelling? Did you have this kind of longing that you wanted to see every corner of the globe or was yeah. there more of a longing to eventually get back home? Um, probably a bit of both, like the longing to, to search. I think sometimes I travel as an escape, like if I don't know what I'm doing, I'll just go away for a little, for a little while. 
Um, I, yeah, I, one thing I love about traveling is like, you know, seeing all these amazing things, but also like connecting with people, um, along the way. And then I do like, I love the feeling of, of that when you've been away for long enough and you start to miss home like that. I like that feeling too, because I think it makes you appreciate what home is. You're listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. You described to me, Katie, that uh, getting a job at uh, Teatrino in mm-hmm. Italy was one of your big successes. I hope I mm-hmm. pronounced that correctly. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, right. What was that and, and what did that involve? Um, so that job I actually heard about. I'd heard about it probably about two or three years before I actually applied for it. Um, I was in an audition for something else. I was talking to this girl and yeah, she's like, oh, I've just got back from Italy. I was like, oh, I love Italy. Like, you know, tell me about it. Like, yeah, I'm doing this uh, performing job where you do kids' shows in English to these kids. And I was like, Cool. So I looked up the website and you had to, being from overseas, you had to make, because they do auditions out of London. Um, so if you can't be there, you submit a video. And I sort of went, oh, it seems a bit hard. Like, oh, la, la. And then, yeah, it was 2014. I'd um, been to India for a holiday and for a short play. I came back. And again, like I mentioned, I go away when I'm a bit lost. So I was a bit like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I was struggling in Sydney to find just day work, like um, ways to pay the rent. So I thought, oh, I just, you know, thought, why don't I just try um, for this job in Italy? So I made a film for that, got some friends to help me put that film together, um, found out that I got it. And, yeah, so I bought my ticket to Italy. I was only meant to go for six months, and I went for three and a half years. As you do. <laughs> As you do. And what was the, when you first landed in Italy, mm-hmm. where were you based? And, and what was that kind of first week or two, like, obviously new culture, new place, yeah. kind of finding your way in a... I guess a new part, new part of the world. Yeah, well, it was quite surreal and a very unusual sort of bubble. So we were in Sanremo, which is right up um, on the Riviera. Like, so we, I actually flew into Nice because it's like an hour on, on the train from um, Nice in France to Sanremo. And we're in this hotel and there's like 25 of us. So mostly from England, um, performers from England, uh, myself um, and two Canadians. So we're sort of, we're in Italy, but we're sort of in this weird little bubble. Commonwealth bubble. Commonwealth bubble, yeah, exactly. Where, um, you know, we were rehearsing every day, had so much to do, but then also kind of wanted to go and see around us. Um, so yeah, that beginning bit was quite hard to adjust because I, I was like, I'm in Italy, but why do I feel like I'm accommodating to English culture? Like, you know, I remember even because we have all our meals together and remember like my meal came out and I started eating it and this English guy was like, oh, Katie, we actually wait for everyone to have their food. And I was like, well, in Italy they don't. Like it was this weird sort of, yeah, mix of mix of cultures. But then once we were out on the road and it's just like you and your group driving around in the van doing your shows, then, yeah, you're very much just on your own. And what were the what were the shows specifically? Who who were you performing for, and you know what what were they looking like? Um, so yeah, so basically, out of those twenty five people, you were split into groups of four. Um, so we yeah, each group was sort of travelling all. I realise I'm using my hands a lot, and no one can see that. Um, travelling all <laughs> <It's> over, expressive. <laughs> yeah, travelling all um, all around Italy. So we all learnt the same set of shows. So they're like fairy tales for the young 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 kids, um, and sort of sketch comedy. You know, if you think that's funny, um, for the for the older kids. So we're sort of kids from like probably the age five, six, like kindergarten age, up until about the equivalent of maybe 
Year eight or just, just early year nine? And in English or Italian? In English, yeah. So we do the shows and then we do like workshops with them with games and stuff um, in English afterwards. And then the group that I was with got extra training to do like one week sort of immersive English weeks with the kids, which was a bit more classroom-based stuff. But all the classroom-based stuff was based in theatre sports and games and things like that. And it's just to sort of get kids speaking English to get them excited. The teachers like we just want them to study, and I'm like, well, because in in Italy, like it's it's very book heavy learning. So you get your English textbook and you copy out the grammar. Like they don't get the chance in the big cities they do, but in the smaller towns we were going to, they don't get the chance to just speak and explore the language. That uh, that experience must have been quite unique. Literally on the road, you're performing mm. day after day. Was that your first experiences in? almost being a professional performer? Yeah, <coughs> excuse me, yeah, it was definitely the first time I'd ever been paid for it. Um, and it's so it's so strange because it was, yeah, like I said, a really interesting circumstance because these, you know, for, for three other people that you're travelling with, you're working together, living together, socialising together. Like you, so it's like a family. You, you get along amazingly, next day you don't. So you're sort of managing that as well. But it was so interesting because, yeah, it was the first time that performing just became a job. So sometimes you wake up and you just don't want to go to work, even though it's something that you love. I think the only difference is, and I remember reflecting on it at the time, the difference is, is when you go to, you might have that, oh, I don't want to go to work feeling, but something in the day will make it better and the good days outweigh the bad days. Did you, when you were out there performing, did you feed off that energy of being in front of the crowd, yeah, in front of the definitely. students? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because often you're getting up really early to drive because we were performing in school halls and community theatres and stuff. So you're getting up really early. You just don't want to, you know, it's like just tired and, or it might be really, really cold or it might be really, really hot. Uh, but, yeah, it's like anything. As soon as the audience is in front of you, it just becomes natural. And did you find during that time you were referring back to, say, your university days where you developed the skills mm. and, and I guess the theories behind drama or had it kind of seeped into your subconscious? Yeah, subconsciously. I think it's just things like I know how to be heard because we didn't have microphones or anything. Um, yeah, I mean, it was interesting. Like, I think in the in the groups you could tell, like, who'd had practical... Because there's lots of theatre degrees, like, theatre study degrees, where opposite of mine. So I had three practical, one theory subject. A lot of courses will have three theory, one practical subject. And you could see the difference a little bit. Like, there's one guy in my group, um, the guy from Canada, who had had a huge background in, in physical theatre and clowning. Like, his whole training was uh, Commedia dell'arte, like, physical theatre. And you, you could just tell in his characterizations was so physical as opposed to, like, a couple of other of us who didn't have that. And did you find yourself learning from other people like, like those performers? Yeah, definitely. Or just, yeah, hearing, like, oh, that's so cool. I've never, like, studied that before. I'd like to learn how to do that. Yeah, definitely. And those six months came to an end. It must have been a, a whirlwind time yeah, for you. Yeah, yeah. And what was next from there? Um, I, yeah, I think I, I think I must have decided that I just didn't want to go home. So I spent that summer, so the European summer, so sort of July... Yeah, June, July, August sort of thing, just doing, like, um, summer camps, initially, like, English camps. So that was a bit more, like, teachery than acty, but you would devise a play with, with the kids and they put it on at the end of the week. So I did that for a little while. Um, and then they, with teacher, you know, they, they get another group to come back and do a shorter tour. So it's sort of trying out the new stuff for the following year. So I thought I wanted to do that. Um, I met with my visa. I didn't know if I was going to be able to, but then it, they found a way... Uh, to make it work. So, yeah, I stayed on and did that. And later on you moved into spending time in the UK, spent mm-hmm. a couple of years in the UK. Yeah. 
And you end up working for a group called the Flying Seagulls. Yeah. What are the Flying Seagulls and what do they do? <laughs> what are the Flying Seagulls? Interesting name. Yeah, so um, in my time in the UK, I um, got a job in Turkey. So it's similar to sort of Italy, like doing this show. It was a, um, re, like a modernised version of Romeo and Juliet. Um, and um, this guy who had written that adaptation, he was one of the actors and the director as well, um, was telling me about this charity that he'd volunteered with the summer before um, and it's basically doing just circus workshops, games, shows for vulnerable children. And in that particular time, he'd worked with them in 2016. So that was when the refugee crisis was, was going on. So they would go to Greece, um, to all these refugee camps to, um, yeah, just their, their philosophy is just to bring laughter and joy. We can't fix anything. We can't change these people's lives, but children still deserve the right to laugh. Um, was there, is their kind of philosophy as a charity. Um, so, yeah, I heard about them and I just could, couldn't quite shake the idea of working with them. Um, so then I'd actually, yeah, my visa had finished in the UK and I'd left and then an opportunity came up for the volunteer training. But I didn't know if I was going to be able to get back into the country, like if that was counted as work or whatever. But anyway, it all it turned out fine. So I was able to, um, yeah, do the training with them. And then I joined them on the leg of the tour. So they start in London and they drive to Greece, basically. So along the way, we stopped in Germany at some of the, like, the refugee centres because Germany took in so many like Syrian and Afghani and other refugees. They've set up these centres where they're waiting for their... Um, so they've been accepted into the country. Um, they're waiting for their housing or their work or whatever. Um, so we performed there. Um, we also performed at some border camps um, on the border of Hungary and... Serbia? Yeah, I think... No. We, we, we were in Hungary driving to the border. Yeah, it must be... Maybe it was Serbia. Well, geography's not great. Know, like, to, oh, <laughs> Find a map somewhere. Yeah. yeah, but anyway, it was a border camp, so that was with the high barbed wire fences. Mm-hmm. These people didn't know if they were coming in or going out. It was right where, um, where Hungary borders with the EU. So they'd made it that far, and, and they were um, held in there. Um, right to the like, um, villages in Romania... Um, and then, yeah, then we got to Greece and then I had to finish up the tour there. Then they continued to all the camps in Greece. And how many people were there travelling with you during that um, time? Again, it was a group of four. And then there's sort of like two people that um, do it constantly and then sort of others like switch in and out. So there's always four people. And you mentioned that was a crisis throughout Europe and, mm. you know, it was, it was headline news everywhere. Yeah. Did you feel out of place during that time that you were maybe in a little bit too deep with what you were doing? Um... It was definitely, I think the most confront, it was definitely confronting. I think it made, I I, I don't know, I'd always think of myself like somewhat of a lefty who cares about people and stuff, but I realised how superficial, like just going to a protest and being like, free the refugees, like doesn't really mean anything. But now that I've seen them as people, I've looked at them in the eyes and they just, I mean, not that it, there's no such thing as normal and not that someone has to look like you in order to be normal, but just... Seeing these people just sitting with their families, they've just got their sneakers on and a polo shirt. You know, like my dad wears sneakers and a polo shirt. Like it, it's just, yeah, really made them like real humans. And I have no idea if, if some of them were good people, some of them were bad people, but that was just irrelevant. And what the most powerful moment was is you're doing it for the kids, but then you see the mums and the dads at the back sort of stick their head in the door thinking, what's this, and watching them crack up laughing was the best. Or like we did um, at the border camp, there was um, a whole section of unaccompanied minors, so that's like teenage boys, uh, mostly from Afghanistan and Syria, but a few other places too, who basically the families send them first 
Um, the idea is, is that they try and get to England or some or Germany or somewhere, settle, so then the family can come. So these guys are aged between like 14 and 18 maybe, 17. Um, and then, yeah, just so we didn't do a show for them because the show is much more for kids. It was just we just set up all this circus equipment, like a balancing beam and um, – and just sort of hung out with them. Must have been cool for them to be able to express themselves yeah, during that time. Yeah, just, you know, and it's funny because they, like, they know that we know, but, and even just really simple things, I'd never thought about the fact that they have mobile phones. So they're on social media, they're texting people, they, they but they would say to us, like, oh, do you think I can get to England? Like, is it easy? And we just have to be like, oh, I'm not really sure, but, like, you know, good luck with your journey. And, and I remember, um, like, yeah, thankfully my brothers taught me a little bit about cricket because that was, yeah, the Afghanis, as soon as they heard I was Australian, just wanted to talk about the cricket. Yeah. <laughs> Some of those Afghan players are huge here in yeah. Australia yeah. as well. And how did you find that when, you know, you'd, you'd finish a day of performing for mm. these families and the kids and then you go back to kind of base camp? Yeah. How did you find that? Was it quite a come down? Yeah, it's really strange. I remember, I remember after that border camp, that was the first time where we pulled out, and me and the other girl who were new just bawled our eyes out. Just because those, like in Germany, in the centres, it was still confronting, but those people had, their asylum had been accepted. They were, you, they were going to have a home there. But for these people, it's like, I have no idea where they are these days. Like, were they sent home? Did they make it? Did they die? Did their families ever make the journey? So that was, and also because you're, go through these huge gates and they just shut the gate behind you as you drive away and you look back and you can just see them through the fences. It must have been pretty confronting. Yeah, it was, yeah. And for you, was that the first time you probably realised the power that drama, performing arts yeah. can have in bringing people together, bringing yeah. smile to people's faces Definitely, well? and especially, yeah, not just, like, the privileged theatre, like, you know, big glorious theatres that people can go to and just... I think, you know, because you always want to do something to help vulnerable vulnerable people, but I always thought I'm not a doctor, I'm not a nurse, I'm not an engineer, I can't go and do those sorts of charities, but this was, I finally felt like I was using my skill for someone else, not for me. And how long did you spend with the, the Flying Seagulls then? Because I'd imagine that'd be quite a taxing experience. Yeah, they well. only, um, you do two weeks at a time. So I could only fit in that two weeks because then I had to leave, but other people, if you want to do more, you have to have a gap um in the middle so they've got like yeah the two people um, who I was with so they've it's a charity but they've got like a few paid performing positions and they they're basically the group managers as well they do all the logistics and stuff um they've been doing it for years um and then yeah us volunteers come on and yeah they only let us if it's your first time you're only allowed to do it for two weeks looking back on those experiences you know Turkey Greece Vietnam mm. India the UK yeah where you're travelling a little bit, you're also using performing arts for, for a range of reasons. Yeah. How, how do you look back on those times? Um, yeah, very fondly. Like it's, it's, it feels very surreal at the same time as well. And I think, I think one thing I've learnt from it is to enjoy the moment more. I think I have a tendency to be very, probably like a lot of artists or just a lot of people. You know, when you're doing something, you're really critical and you're like, oh, well, I'm doing this, but I should be doing it like that. Or look what so-and-so is doing. Look what they're doing. Instead of just like oh, upon reflection, that's actually pretty cool that I went and did that. And you've been able to take your skill set and bring smiles to people's faces who are in yeah. very, very tough situations Yeah, so well. like you said before, you know, I might not be walking the red carpet in Hollywood, but I think I would choose seeing someone's smiling face who's lost a family member in Syria and not ever get recognition for that. 
You're listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast, brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. You mentioned to me, Katie, before the show that for you a challenge has been wanting something that can sometimes seem unachievable. Mm. What does that mean to you? I think it's wanting something that yourself and everyone around you tells you will never happen or it's impossible or it's not right to want that or, well, and, you know, I don't, you know, sometimes as a girl as well, you're, you're not pretty enough, you're not skinny enough, you're not any of these things. Um, and it's just, I think it's a challenge because I think, I like to think of myself as, you know, as pretty self-assured and opinionated, but it's, I feel like as I get older and wiser, I'm realising just how much I absorbed that information instead of rejecting that information, which probably kind of goes back to what I was saying to you before about universities and why I would discourage people to go, because I think it's more important to grow a thick skin and be like, okay, thank you for your opinion, um, but I'm going to keep trying this. Rather than just rolling with the punches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you use that as motivation over the years, that kind of, um, not even a rejection, but mm. I guess just that kind of, yeah, institutionalised approach. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's hard because like, the rejection does get tiring and it's very tiring to have to go to jobs that you don't like just to keep this thing going. I'll, I'll question it every day. <laughs> like, you know, is this, should I be doing something else? Is this, is, it's always, is this still making me happy? And you only go through periods of no work, you do go, oh, yeah, not sorry, but then you do something again, you're like, oh, no, that's that's how I'm meant to be feeling. And have there been times over the years where you've thought about kind of throwing throwing it in, throwing your passion in, saying, you know what, Yeah, it's been great, but I'm, I'm done with it? Oh, 100%, especially as I get older, because my other little perception of society, again, based on nothing, not a social scientist, is that I think um, our culture is, isn't very embracing of age, of getting older, I think other cultures see age and as wisdom, and we look up to older people. I think our culture, and especially especially in the arts, like older women have to look perfect. Older men are allowed to get fat and bold and still get a job on the television. Whereas if you look at like all those morning shows, the women are done up to the nines, makeup, you know, fillers in their face, and the men just sit there, fat and old, and that's fine. So I think it's as I get older, I do go oh. Do I still want to be at this point? Like, how, yeah, how can I get control of it? Do I still want to be doing it in 10 years' time? But I think the irony is that you need the experience, like for, for someone like yourself, yeah. that you're, you're just gaining all this great experience that it may culminate in even stuff even more bigger, but yet yeah. society's telling, no, we need the next yeah. young, bright yeah. thing coming through yeah. who might Which have a all, year worth of experience. Yeah, and we all know that those sort of child celebrities, like that's not good for their mental health either. But then you look at someone like Jackie Weaver who got her first professional gig in her 40s, I think it was. I could be wrong. Sorry, Jackie, if you're listening, if I got that wrong. <laughs> and do you see people like Jackie or, mm. or others who kind of, I guess, didn't crack it, and I'm using yeah. inverted commas, until late 40s, 50s? Yeah. Do you see that as something to, I guess, aspire to? Does it yeah. keep you kind of going? Definitely, definitely. I think, and even, like, I always looked up to Claudia Carvin, who, you know, very successful in my eyes, but, you know, you compare her to Kate Blanchett and you might go, oh, not so successful, but there was just something about her acting and her wholesomeness that I just, you know, always looked up to. And at the moment, Katie, you've got a, a very cool gig. You're climbing the uh, Harbour Bridge yep, as your day that's job. that's my day job. Yeah, how do you balance that, uh, the day job, climbing the Harbour mm. Bridge with your, with your other work? Um, it, yeah, it's all, the day job 
dream job situation has always been a struggle, um, a huge struggle. And it's also like, so I'm 33 and I've worked casually or part-time my whole working career. Don't have savings, don't really know what super is. So I've sort of, in my choices, I'm not very adult. Again, I'm using inverted commas. <laughs> um, so yeah, I've tried all sorts of things and I feel really lucky now because I found this job um, that I just really enjoy. Um, so, and that has just made everything feel so much easier. I think because I enjoy it, I feel confident at it. I feel like I'm using my skills. I'm out in the fresh air. Um, and it's quite flexible around if things pop up. Um, as well, I just have to remember that now I'm an adult with a job I have to put in annual leave. It's not a casual job. Where you you just, get paid for it. That's I get paid for it, yeah. yeah. With the recent show, I'd forgotten to put my leave in, so there was a bit of a mad panic to like swap the shifts around to make sure I could actually go to the show. And while you're climbing the bridge, you'd have, you literally got people from all around the world yeah. and you're showing them yeah. the beautiful city of Sydney. Yeah. Um, do you feel like you're performing when you're up there? Um, sometimes. I, have, I think I have got a bit of a performance mode, but it's quite funny. I thought when I got the job, I thought my performance mode was going to be very dramatic, but it's actually more sort of jokey, laid back, not like larrikin type thing, but, you know, I love the sort of, yeah, just the banter and the lame jokes and things like that. And when you're up there on stage and across all the the dozens and dozens mm. of performances you've done, how do you feel when you're in the moment? Mm. And is there a difference between when you're, you're on and you're smashing it and when yeah. you're maybe having a, a difficult show? Yeah, definitely. I think it's, you, I know a show's been good if I can't remember it. So you're kind of that locked in, you're that yeah, in the zone. and you're in the flow. But then I remember when I was doing the short monologue, the one woman show in India, and I forgot my line, and it sort of, and it felt like I'd stopped for about five minutes. Um, I hadn't. No one noticed, but that's when time slowed down. That's when you become so aware of of what's around you. But I guess I don't know what they call it, being in flow or whatever, where you just don't really realize what's going on, but you just and what's what I find amazing now is even. When I am performing, if I do make a mistake or, or especially in, in my own stuff, just how your brain can just save yourself so quickly. It, yeah, it's quite amazing. And quite a technical question. How do you go about remembering your lines? Because for me, mm. I struggle. I'm reading questions as we speak yeah. today. Like, How do you go about remembering word for uh, word plus the, the physical components that need to go with yeah, that? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I've always known I'm a very kinesthetic, hands-on learner. Um so, you know, in the past when I've had projects on and you're working with people who will say like, all oh, right, you have to be off book, know your lines before the first rehearsal. I really struggle with that because I can't just sit in a room and learn. But if I'm on the floor, I could know a scene after doing it three times. And do you feed off working with other people or do you prefer kind of a, the solo show? Um, definitely with, with people. What I like about the solo shows is is being in control and in charge of where it's going but I could never do it all myself I'd always need someone someone there and just of late you know the past 18 months or so you've actually moved into to writing your own shows yeah um the first one tempering and then also um working with a, one of your best friends on the hour of power yeah. show how um I guess empowering is that being to be able to write your own content yeah produce your own content and go out there and perform it um I think that's changed everything for me kind of looping back to what we were saying at the start about institutionalized thinking and sort of forcing you into a box and asking permission to do everything it's really made me go like oh I can just go and do this um I think I'd always wanted to but I never had the confidence to and then it was actually when I was working at the flying seagulls and seeing 
these families and these young boys literally locked up that I was like, what am I afraid of? I am the definition of the word freedom. My family's not holding me back. Gender probably in a way, but not nothing compared to a lot of other people. Like, you know, I don't have a savings account, but financially I'll, I've got support. I'll, you know, always be okay. That I just went, who do I think I am not to do it? And see, like, I think seeing that, seeing the definition of not freedom in a person made me go like, wow, I'm so caught up in my head of it going wrong or the show flopping or being a shit writer. I was so scared of that when I was like, I was, it was almost a get over yourself moment to just do it. So then, yeah, when I got back to England, um, I, yeah, I'd written, no, it was, no, sorry. It was before that, that I'd written a little short play, short version of temporary. And it was, it was getting back after that, that I would spent, I sort of not owe it to these people. That's a bit lame, but they don't have these opportunities. I do. If I'm going to make a crack of it, I just have to do it properly. At the same time, though, it's very, very gutsy to you're putting your name out there, you're putting your show out there for people to critique, to analyse. Yeah. How did you overcome those hurdles? Was, oh. was it, or was it more just your own thought process that made it seem like it was a big hurdle? Yeah, yeah. And it, it was petrifying. Like, I remember the first night of Temporary was the first night I'd ever performed my own writing. And a lot of my writing is, you know, the Temporary was a fictional story, but it was based in a lot of truth, based on my own experiences. So. Oh, yeah, I don't know how I got through it. I think I just really wanted to do it. But, yeah, it was so petrifying. And after that show, though, you got it done. And was it a weight off your shoulders or was it, I want more of this? I want more of this, yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, I think I got tired of working on other people's projects who were their passion project, not mine. And, yeah, you sort of have to, to, to um, give up a lot of time and energy into other projects. And I found myself just saying yes to projects because I was so scared of not having anything on. But I've now decided it's actually better to have fewer things going of better quality or that you're more connected to than just being like, yeah, I'll be in that, yeah, I'll be in that, yeah, I'll be in that. And you feel more energised as a result of not just having that selection but kind of driving your own vehicle as a cliche. definitely, definitely. And do you believe, Katie, that, like, do you think that you find yourself as a person or that you create yourself in terms of do you think you your path is written for you or you have to uncover it yourself that's a very interesting question I didn't know that was coming (laughs) I think a bit of both like I don't believe it's all paved out and we can just sit to the side and do nothing but then I do think I you know I do think the world is mysterious and things just fall into place and I do think I think humans are more pure and wholesome as children and like I've said it from the start we, we almost unlearn how to just be true to ourselves and have to put it back together so I think it's as you put it back together then you're able to create the path that you're meant to be on and looking back on on the experiences you've had up until this point mm-hmm. especially overseas and now kind of bringing that back back home um yeah do you look back on that fondly or all those experiences that you have had yeah I do like I and it's, it's funny because a lot of them aren't holidays. So it's not like, oh, I sat by the beach every day and, you know, there's ups and downs. Um, sometimes I do wonder if I peaked when I was seven. <laughs> but you know what, that's all right. <laughs> um, yeah, but I do think, and I think especially coming back from spending such a long time overseas, you sort of expect to come back changed. So I sort of sort of came back and I was like, oh, I haven't, it's got a bit of a beer belly now. I don't really like what's changed dramatically. And I didn't, yeah, it's probably just been in the past eighteen months that I can see a shift in my attitude to things that I think has come from living in a city like London that's just so big 
And if you don't do what you want to do, then no one else will do it for you. So what is that shift for you? Is it a confidence shift or is it just a, um, a perspective on life? Probably a bit of both. I think I do feel a bit more confident, a bit of a perspective on life and a bit of a realisation of I... So, yeah, I've had all these great experiences, which I do like. It's a bit of a tapestry, but I probably do need a little bit more of a focus, of a goal of like, okay, where do I want to be and how do I actually get there? I think I just sort of went through like, be like I want to be an actor and I'm just going to like go on this, get, take this job and go on this little holiday instead of like, okay, that's what you want. How do you go and get it? Like, if I wanted to be a tennis player, I'd be on the tennis court every single day. What is that for being a performer? And over years, you've toiled and toiled and toiled, not necessarily with the intent of, of making a celebrity career mm. out of it. Um, did you ever think, though, like, hey, I've made it? Like, I've made it as a performer? No, not yet. Not where I want to be. Um, I'm hoping that'll come. <laughs> um, I think especially because now I've, I've made a bit of a shift... Um, in myself of where I want to go, of I want to go more into stand-up comedy and presenting that type of performing um, than like acting and drama and that sort of stuff. I'm feeling a bit tired of that. And temporary and hour of power to your more recent shows are based on that kind of comedy yep. approach. Yeah. Have you found that as a new wave of energy for you? Yeah. Yeah. Especially so temporary, like effectively, probably could be a stand-up show. However, it's performed in character. The story is told in, in a character, whereas Hour of Power is just microphone in hand trying to make people laugh. So the first time doing Hour of Power, I was literally shaking. Like, I was so, so nervous. But then doing it, I was like, wow, I actually really like this. And I think that's a skill that now I want to focus on this year and get better at. And it has been a, a massive 18 months for you. You've you know, gone to Fringe Festival in Adelaide. You've done Fringe Festival in Sydney. You've written your own shows. Mm -hmm. What's next for you in the next, say, 12 to 18 months? Um, good question. I was just talking about how I need to have goals. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, we just finished up um, our Power's second run in Sydney over the weekend. Um, yeah, it's with my best friend, Grace. So I think we're, we're hoping to do our Power 2.0 um, some point this year. Um, I think I also want to start on working on a, another one-hour um, solo show, but probably more just a stand-up style. Um, I probably should start doing rooms and open mics and things like, like a little five minute slots just to get better to, to try new things. I've sort of set that as a bit of a goal for myself. Um, and then Grace and I are hoping, I don't know if it'll be this year or next year, um, to do Hour of Power in, at Edinburgh Fringe. That's sort of a bit of a dream of ours. <laughs> Pretty exciting goals yeah, there. Yeah. And for you, is it a sense of satisfaction getting to this point in terms of, again, as I said, you're putting the hours, you're putting the the travel mm. to get to a fantastic point in your career. Do you yeah. feel a sense of satisfaction? Yeah, I do. I feel really proud, especially of temporary and hour of power. I think they've they've changed everything and they're worth a bundle of seven projects that I've done in the past. Yeah. Well, Katie, it's been awesome to chat with you Thank on you. the show. Mm -hmm. uh, before we do wrap up, did yes. you want to yeah, plug any of the shows, plug your social media channels? Where um, can we hear more about uh, You can hear you more at the moment. Um I think Instagram is what we're using. <laughs> so, yeah, so Grace and I, uh, Katie Grace underscore Hour of Power. Um, we're going to keep that up between shows with just a bit of content with the two of us. Um, we're actually looking to start a podcast as well, so any of that information will be on there. Um, otherwise, Temporary the Play is another channel on Instagram. But, yeah, my Uber driver told me the other day if I want to be a comedian, I have to get a YouTube channel. So maybe I'll have a YouTube channel one day. Maybe you'll get there. <laughs> maybe I'll get there. <laughs> Now, Katie, thanks very much for your time on the show and cool. all the best for a very exciting year ahead. Lovely. Thank you. Thanks, Jono. 
Thanks for listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast. Brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and proudly presented by the Western Weekender.